I'm reading from Luke uh, 14, 1 through 14. One Sabbath, Jesus was having dinner in the home of an important Pharisee, and everyone was carefully watching Jesus. All of a sudden, a man with swollen legs stood up in front of him. Jesus turned and asked the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of Moses, Is it right to heal on the Sabbath? But they did not say a word. Jesus took hold of the man, then he healed him and sent him away. Afterwards, Jesus asked the people, If your son or ox falls into a well, wouldn't you pull him out at once, even on the Sabbath? There was nothing they could say. Jesus saw how the guests had tried to take the best seats, so he told them, When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the best place. Someone more important may have been invited. Then the one who invited you will come and say, Give your place to this other guest. You will be embarrassed and will have to sit in the worst place. When you're invited to be a guest, go and sit in the worst place. Then the one who invited you may come and say, My friend, take a better seat. You will then be honored in front of all the other guests. If you put yourself above, uh, above others, you will be put down. But if you humble yourself, you will be honored. Then Jesus said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends and family and relatives and rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you in return, and you will be paid back. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the paralyzed, the lame, and the blind. They cannot pay you back, but God will bless you and reward you when his people rise from death. Well, good morning. Thanks, Matt, so much for doing the scripture reading. It is so great to see you here this morning, and I want to welcome visitors. Uh, Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. And um, I'm going to greet people online. Hi, how are you? Thank you for joining us online. It's so wonderful to get to gather and to worship with one another and to um, spend a little bit of time in God's word. One of the things, kids, I realize I've asked you to stay in church, but I promise you I'm not going to go very long. Well, it'll seem like an eternity for you, but for your parents, we'll tell you it's not that long. And we have bagels and donuts upstairs. We are going to get to our bagel brunch. It's going to be a lot of fun. We gather this morning, and like most weeks, we come in here on a Sunday morning having all manner of tragedy befall the country, the world, our city, and we walk in, and I think we have to acknowledge just the trauma that's going on. I'm thinking mainly about Florida and the awesome, devastating um, just destruction of Ian and um, how people are left homeless, they are left without uh, medical care, and people struggling down there. And I think to speak out that we see those people, we think of them, and we wish for them um, speedy uh, recovery and doing what we can in order to help that effort down there. And it's just the awesome power of nature is one of the things, especially that hurricane, is just incredible, the devastation that's there. So we pray for our fellow country people down there. And I also am um, have been moved by the happenings in Iran. Masha Amini, who was a 24-year-old, I believe, 24 or 23, who was visiting from the country in Tehran, was taken up by the uh, morality police and ended up dead. 
because she was not wearing her hijab in the correct way. And the uh, revolution that is happening amongst women and other you know, pe supportive people in that country, I firmly believe the heart and root of racism, uh, homophobia, even uh, you know, um, financial inequalities begins and ends with the way that women are denied the rights and autonomy over who they are in their personhood in the world. The oldest form of discrimination has always been patriarchy. And when we see a country and a group of women rising up, we stand with them, especially as this church, a church that embraces leadership based on gifts and not reholding back because of any gender or anything like that. We stand with those women in Iran. So I'm flying a little bit close to the sun this morning because I'm preaching on Luke 14. And as you know, we are in a currently a 30-week series on Luke by Tom. But he's only in Luke... I'm being serious. That's, that's actual fact. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny. Uh, he's in Luke 10. So by the spring, when we get around to Luke 14, hopefully you will have forgotten everything I've said at this moment. And it will be a new and a fresh when he comes and preaches on what I think is a really wonderful set of scriptures. So kids, um, well, actually, everybody first. Uh, how many of you have someone in your life who you deeply love, someone you would do anything for, someone who may be so important to you that you can't imagine life without them, and yet that person has certain deficiencies in their manners, in their etiquette when they sit at a table, that makes you question your own judgment of someone's character? Perhaps you're not as good at understanding people. I see people raising hands. This is... Now, so confession, I eat too quickly. That's probably not a surprise for any of you. And I take too big a bite. A fact that I'm reminded of regularly by my dear sweet wife who's joining us online. Hello. She has worked diligent with me, diligently with me over the last 24 years to help me be a better me. And while in my everyday eating life, her reminders fall on deaf ears, I still eat quickly and I take too big a bite. Whenever I am in a fine dining situation, that is a restaurant, that's what I classify as fine dining, <laughs> I consciously think to myself, Jason, slow down, take smaller bites, no one is going to take your food, no one, oh, and don't spill food on your shirt. I wanted to wear a white sweater today, but I literally, I wish you could have seen me in, in, in the closet this morning going, I'll spill, I'll spill. And I did spill coffee this morning all over my, well, these are dark jeans, doesn't matter. Anyway, I'm sloppy is what I'm trying to say. And kids, do your parents ever talk to you about your manners at the table? Do they mention, don't hold your fork like that, don't chew like that, close your mouth, your other hand isn't another utensil for you to stuff your food in? I'm going to give you a little secret, kids. Listen to this. Nothing makes your parents feel like they are failing as parents more than watching you eat at the table. <laughs> Nothing. When they see your own, when, when they look at you, the children that they love and care about deeply, who did everything acting like a pack of hyenas, they think, I am a failure. It used to drive 
Allison and me crazy the manners of our children as they sit around the table. In confession, I would often point out their flaws as a way to redirect from my own. So, which is what most parents do, at least most, most dads do, and sometimes kids, you got to take one for the team, okay? And our kids had such bad table manners that we would say, all right, if you don't start eating right, we're going to sign you up for Barclay classes in Bronxville, which is a children learn manners, social skills, ballroom dancing, including table manners. It's still active today. Of course, it was an empty threat because it's expensive. We're not going to do that. <laughs> but we would bring it up regularly and legit one time, Zeke and Levi started crying, like that rage, fear crying that kids get. And they're like, we don't want to go to Barfleece. That's what they called it, Barfleece. Sam, now they're too old because it's a cap of 14, just for those of you with younger kids, if you want to go, go up there. But if Sam keeps leaning back in his chair, I promise you, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't think I could take it. I probably don't come off as a person with a high level of etiquette, that ADD tapping of the foot, of the leg, does not really lend itself to like, who's shaking the table? And I always have to, that's me, sorry, my leg is going back and forth. But I love being around people who comport themselves in a dignified way. I think of Mary Dell as having very good etiquette. <laughs> dignified, I love it. On This American Life, on episode 511, you should listen to this, it's really funny, Sarah Koenig invited her mother, Maria Matheson, to talk about seven things that people were not supposed to talk about or discuss in any way at any gathering. And it wasn't that these seven things were taboo subjects, just Miss Matheson thought that they were fundamentally boring. And forcing people to listen to them is just the height of having poor etiquette. Miss Matheson would never say, Miss Matheson would never include a person sharing their dream the night they had before, the route the person took to the party, how a person slept, or heaven forbid, anything to do with money. These are topics that are not nearly as interesting to anybody else except for the person telling them. I have a lot of dreams, so, but I have learned not to share those with them because nobody else was there. Proper etiquette, comporting oneself with dignity, style, and air of authority can be very, very enticing. Every macro and micro culture has its own expression of appropriate etiquette. As I look out this morning, I don't see a single woman in here with a hat on or a single man wearing a suit. Oops, except for Eddington. There he is. I love you. I mean, whoa. Besides Eddington, no one else. Oh, wait, and Colin back there. Okay, two. Paul and Paul, three. All right. See, in March, Tom will re-preach this sermon, and you'll all forgotten everything. But up the street, a few blocks, there are people dressed to the nines. The hats, everyone wearing a suit, and ready to show themselves in the best way possible by their dress for the Lord. We just witnessed Queen Elizabeth's funeral, which has this choreographed and exacting etiquette. And of course, half the intrigue is watching to see who breaks etiquette, if they're going to, heaven forbid, drop um, the former queen, or 
if somebody is going to yell something out, which did happen. Someone yelled at, out at one of the former princes, Prince Andrew, as her coffin was being processed down in Edinburgh. Etiquette abhors chaos. Etiquette quiets doubts and places everything and everyone in its proper place. Unfortunately, the customary code of polite behavior in society or among members of a particular group enables power to be entrenched amongst the gatekeepers and critiques of those who are observing proper etiquette. It's true today, and it was true 2,000 years ago when Jesus was having a dinner at the home of an important, um, important Pharisee. So Jesus is sitting at the Sabbath, and all of a sudden, a man with swollen legs, he stands up in front of them, and Jesus turns and asks the Pharisees teacher, and the teachers, is it right to heal on the Sabbath? Would it be improper for me to heal this man who has presented himself? Now, we kind of underestimate the importance of the Sabbath, how important it was for the Pharisees. I'm not sure there's anything we hold within the Protestant Christian discipline as highly as the Sabbath for observant Jews and certainly for ancient Jews. Some of our dearest and closest friends are observant Jews, and from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, there are no electronics of any time. The Sabbath of any type, the Sabbath is taken as a time of rest, worshiping, and honoring God. And Jesus is in the midst of this very time when he decides to break not only proper etiquette, but break the very law of Moses. Jesus took hold of the man, then he healed him and sent him away. I love Jesus, wanting to follow up. Afterwards, Jesus asked the people, okay, let's say your son or, I don't know, maybe you don't like your son, an ox, okay, falls into a well. Wouldn't you pull him out? At once, even on the Sabbath? Please, you can see the silence around the table like, this is the easiest question I have for you, please. The question is met with silence. That awkward, uncomfortable silence. The kind of silence where people probably know the answer Jesus is looking for, but to verbalize the answer is just too risky. If teenagers, you relate to this, right? Or, or you, you're in class, you have the answer, but you're like, I'm not going to throw myself out here because what if I answer and I break some sort of I don't know, what if my voice cracks and then everyone makes fun of me? What if I break some sort of silent etiquette that I'm not sure about? It's better if I just sit here in silence. This is exactly what's happening with the people eating with Jesus. Remember, it's the Sabbath. There are very clear do's and don'ts for people who follow and stay in line with the requirements of the Sabbath. The people around the table didn't realize that Jesus was the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus' role was more than that of a teacher. It was also to be a healer, a minister, and a Messiah restoring all things to God. So Jesus heals the man that made himself known. Then he throws out this hypothetical scenario, one intended to be this low-hanging fruit 
for the people sitting around the table with him. What if a son or an ox falls in a well? Do you rescue them at once? Of course we sit here and say, yes, you rescue them. Of course. But how many of us have gotten into our theological, exegetical kind of ins and outs, twistings, ups and downs when we're trying to decide if someone has a seat at the table of God or not? Again, Jesus is met with silence. They were bound by such adherence to the law that the good in their midst, in the easy hypothetical scenario, was silent. What do you think would have happened if one person had said, oh, you can heal, you can pull your ox or your son out? What do you think Jesus would have said? Perhaps something like he said to Zacchaeus when he pledged to give him four times, when Zacchaeus said, I'll give back four times what I have stolen. And he says, what? Truly salvation has come to this house today. Or when the Roman centurion told Jesus he need not come and heal the centurion's servant, but rather Jesus could just speak the word and the servant would be healed. Remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, I have not seen anyone in all of Israel who has had as much faith as this one. What would Jesus have said if they had merely said, of course, you could rescue someone in distress on the Sabbath. The law is like that. It strangles and weighs down. It imprisons a person, a people, a church, onto a scorecard of right and wrong according to the law. Jesus, having demonstrated his point in healing the man with dropsy, turns to impart another wisdom, to impart a new etiquette in the light of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. Jesus sees how all the guests are around looking for the most important place to sit. He says, when you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit at the best place. Someone more important may have been invited. Then one who invited you will come and say, um, excuse me, give your other place to the guests. There will always be someone better than you. If you burden yourself with trying to be the most favored person in the group. Let me read that one more time. There will always be someone better than you if you burden yourself with trying to be the best one at the table. Jesus is giving us insight into an upside-down kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first, but Jesus is also imparting wisdom on how relationships work, seeking honor only for those, seeking honor only works for so long, but humility never gets old. True, authentic humility is not only our calling as Christ followers, it is a key in having relationships that reflect Christ in the world. You cannot be self-righteous and humble at the same time. They are diametrically opposed to one another. Now, of course, with Jesus, there are multi-layers anytime he teaches or says anything. Beyond the last shall be first and the first shall be last table etiquette, Jesus is using a wedding feast scenario, drawing upon imagery with the kingdom, that's connected with the kingdom of God. Remember in Matthew 22, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. 
There are many other places in the Gospels where Jesus tells parables or does miracles connected to a wedding feast. And here in Luke 14, Jesus is both painting a hypothetical picture and informing everyone of an impending wedding feast that they're all invited to, and they have no idea the honor and glory afforded to the guest that's coming. The wedding feast of Jubilee, the wedding feast, the freedom for the captives, hope to the hopeless, healing for the sick, welcome for the outcast, the table is being set and you are invited, Jesus is saying, and remember to have an etiquette informed by the kingdom Jesus represents. Be humble. Expect others to be greater than you. Sit to witness the joy at the guests brought to the table. The seat isn't yours to purchase. I'm going to say that again. None of these seats in here are ours to purchase, hoard, or earn. Rather, it's a seat given to us by our host. As if to put a finer point on his instruction, Jesus actually turns to the host. Talk about, talk about breaking etiquette. Can you imagine going to a party and being like, next time, I want you to do it this way. Instead of inviting all these people, instead of, not well, me, quite frankly, and your friends and family and your neighbors, who are going to have to feel like they pay you back, actually what I'd like you to do, remember Jesus is probably the honored guest, invite the poor, invite the sick, invite the lame, invite the blind, because they can't pay you back. They can't do it. But God will bless you and your reward will be and reward you when his people rise from the dead. The audacity. (laughs) Jesus has that way about him, doesn't he? He doesn't let the rules become the overlords of people. He doesn't let the rules become overlords of people and he is quick to tell the expert rule followers to not find their hope in those rules. In the same way that we find hope in God's living, breathing, human incarnation, we see the truest manifestation of that hope in people, not in the rules. To tell you how deeply embedded this rule following is, in me right now, in my mind saying, there's a sentence that wants to come out that says, I'm not saying we can't follow rules. Okay, good. I have my rule blanket back on. It feels so good and comfortable. I purposely didn't write that in here, even though I wanted to. Even though the truth of this is that Jesus is always about people more than rules. We see the kingdom etiquette focus on the needs of people, not the fulfillment of the rules for the rules' sake. But it's so hard for us to believe that this is true. So sometimes we stand in silence at the questions being asked of us, the same way the people at the banquet were quiet when Jesus asked about rescuing a son or an ox on Sabbath. We can be so afraid of being wrong that we withhold rescue from hurting people. Think about that. 
We can be so afraid of breaking decorum that we freeze up and become what people of inaction, people who are lukewarm in the face of the hurting, the poor, the outcast, the judged. Jesus says, do not worry about being praised by your friends, families, relatives, or rich neighbors. Pleasing them is easy because it mirrors how you might honor yourself. Rather, bring in the poor, the paralyzed, the lame, the blind, the ones who have no standing over you, and then you will receive a blessing from God. Can we see it? Can we see that the church is an expression of the kingdom of God in this world? And it cannot be just a place for our people. It must be a house for all people because we are merely guests in this house for Jesus is our host and this is Jesus' banquet and we are called to have an etiquette that reflects the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen.